0: Hello and welcome to episode number 299 of the Armin Show podcast, where it is always interesting with science and professors learning more and connecting with one another. On this episode, close to 300, we have Professor Elizabeth S. Anderson. She is a professor at University of Michigan. Arthur F. Turnow, professor and John Dewey, Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at that university, and specializes in political philosophy, ethics, and feminist philosophy, which is wonderful. Welcome to the show.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I am glad to have you on, and before we get into the topics and your book and other work, I always like to mention Backstory and past guest Yancy Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter, had mentioned that you were one of the very few people that inspires him or your work connects with his ethos. And I thought that was wonderful. And he is a very warm individual. And so I always like to check upon individuals that are recommended or the basis of someone's thinking. And I like warmth a lot. So that was good. And you know of Yancey as well, in fact. How do you know of him in the first place too?
1: So back in the day, a couple of years ago, I was chair of the philosophy department at University of Michigan. And Yancey came to my attention, I can't recall exactly how, but I wanted to invite him to speak to our philosophy, politics and economics majors. It's an undergraduate program that I created a a few years ago. And I thought he would be really ideal for inspiring the undergraduates and giving them a vision of what enterprise can do.
0: Enterprise is a topic I believe we will be covering. Do you... Did you guys speak in any form about your viewpoints or shared viewpoints of the sort?
1: You know, we've talked, yeah, we've talked a little bit about that and also about uh, like better ways to live.
0: Right. That's the key thing. How can we live in a smoother way than we did 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago, with a little bit more knowledge in our? thoughts. Now, that is wonderful, and the connections of life. How did you get to your current position as a professor where you are? How did you get to this point from where you started? Why philosophy? Why not accounting?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, that's really a great question. Um, So I was an undergraduate at Swarthmore College right outside of Philadelphia. I was originally interested in majoring in economics. That was my big thing. I was a real fan of economics. But as I was studying economics, it just raised some philosophical questions for me. Like in economics, they use this term preference and people are always supposed to be maximizing the satisfaction of their preferences. And that's supposed to make them happier. They'll be better off. But I had a lot of questions about that because a lot of times people in pursuing their preferences do stuff that isn't all that great for them you know like <laughs> you might get addicted to drugs and you even as you're seeking the next high you know that it's actually not making you better off right, right. <laughs> you just get trapped and there's just a and it's not just that but people do a lot of stuff that they come to regret and that even as they're doing it they take the extra piece of cake and they know they're going to gain weight all this kind of stuff right and i was thinking Economics isn't really helping us understand when the satisfaction or pursuit of our preferences would be good or not, but it's in philosophy where we explore those issues and also explore issues about the organization of society and whether it's just or not, um, or you know whether it helps people. And economics was taking certain things for granted, certain assumptions for granted that I thought needed to be explored and investigated. And that's really what led me into philosophy and majoring in philosophy, but I'm still a very heavy consumer of economics and a lot of my work intersects with economics and is about how we organize work and production and markets and exchange. Mm
0: So it's sort of like economics didn't have some of the elements that you most resonate with that philosophy is able to tackle.
1: That's right. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. I think that's what differentiates different fields. It's like you would not go into one field because it's like, I'm not drawn. You're not touching on these key points that matter to me. And so you'd switch to different category. That's pretty cool. Now in philosophy, which subcategories have you delved into most and who are some of the people behind or they have views that you go with or have uh, read from and based your thoughts on
1: yeah so let me just start by telling you what for me was by far the most influential course i ever took in philosophy mm mm-hmm. It was a course taught by a wonderful philosopher of science, Hugh Lacey, at Swarthmore College when I was an undergraduate. I took this course on the history and philosophy of science. And we studied the history of astronomy and physics from the ancient Greeks to about Newton. Okay. <laughs> and. You know, there there was a scientific revolution that took place with Galileo, Copernicus, Newton, people like that. And then there was a lot of philosophical discussion that was happening about, well, what really, you know, the whole foundation of physics and astronomy was completely overturned during this revolution. And philosophers in the 17th and 18th century were all trying to figure out how that happened and why and hey you know, how do we know that this is a better way to do science? <laughs> and so questions about knowledge and questions about metaphysics like do colors really exist or are they just subjective features of our mind that processes you know physical attributes in these subjective ways? Um, and once I st- study the history of science, suddenly the history of early modern metaphysics and epistemology started making sense in a way they had never done before. And that gave me this amazing idea. When you look at philosophers of science, what they're doing is they're tackling metaphysical and epistemological issues that arise within the practice of science itself that is questions that arise outside of philosophy, you know, in the, pra- in the practice of other forms of inquiry, were the things that these early modern philosophers were trying to answer. And I thought, you know, how come we don't do ethics that way, right? And ethics, so much of it is foundational. You try to come up just by thinking hard with some foundational principle, Of ethics, like utilitarianism, oh, we should just maximize happiness, right? Or the categorical imperative, we should only act on, you know, principles that we could universalize, that everybody could act on at the same time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you try to like figure out what to do on the basis of these very abstract and general principles. And I was thinking, well, you know, philosophers of science don't think that we can come up with principles of science independent of actual empirical investigation that scientists are doing. So why should we think that we can come up with fundamental principles of ethics without looking at the actual prob- ethical problems that people confront in their actual lives and how that changes historically as we have to meet new challenges. And it's really that, this inspiration to take how philosophers of science work today, where they look at metaphysical and epistemological questions that are arising in the actual practice of science. You know, like, do do fundamental particles really exist or are they just waves or features of fields, right? That's sort of a metaphysical question. (gasps) Or how do we even know whether, you know, the laws were, coming up with to describe you know physical events are true <clears throat> and, and right they're taking problems from some other domain of practice mm-hmm. and then philosophers are trying to like figure out answers and I thought well we should be doing that in moral and political philosophy too we should be looking at the problems that arise say in political organization, in work in production, or just in ordinary life, when individuals are coming to grips with hard choices in their life and start thinking from those problems. And then philosophers can help clarify the questions. They can help, you know, drawing distinctions that maybe will forge a path forward for exploring possible answers. We can help ourselves understand how to test hypotheses about how to live and that's really where i'm coming from and the great inspiration here turns out to be john dewey oh. the great pragmatist philosopher and i'm you know dewey all the way down i'm a pragmatist
0: long support for the dewey decimal system <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good one thing that comes to mind based on what you were saying how important are questions how much value in is there in questions when you come up with questions on a topic is there a lot of answer in a question i was thinking about this recently
1: oh that's like such a deep question and in fact that gets right to the heart of pragmatism oh so dewey thought that suppose in the course of life, you face a circumstance in which you can't proceed as normal as usual, just according to habit. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that now you have to stop and deliberate about what to do. Okay. So just to give you a very simple example, suppose you always take a certain path to work that cuts through a forest and down a ravine And you would always cross a little bridge (laughs) right at that time. But suppose this time on your way to work, the bridge has fallen down. Okay, what do you do now, right? And and that's when you, instead of like just walking mindlessly by habit, you can't do that anymore. Now now the world has thrown up an obstacle and you got to figure out, well, I mean, do I have to find a different route? (laughs) Should I call ahead and, you know, explain why I can't get to work on time? You know, should I try to see if I could, you know, climb down the ravine and back up, but maybe it's like too muddy or slippery or something or too steep. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I can find a log, right? And push it across and then like climb along the log, like, right, I have to explore different options, right? And what Dewey said is that once, you know, you have an open-ended, Problem that you haven't precisely specified but once you specify the question precisely enough the answer is in your lap <laughs> right that is my problem is uh finding a way to get across i've narrowed it down maybe because i don't see another way around it okay mm-hmm. and Hence my problem. Maybe I can narrow it down: is finding a fallen log big enough that will hold my weight and is big enough to cross the entire ravine. <laughs> you see what I mean? Right. And you, you get it. You, you specify your problem in greater and greater detail until the complete solution is already contained in your description of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so asking the right question in a way is, is the path to finding the solution.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, I've had that feeling. Also, that's a good point about it. Suddenly, when you're kicked off of autopilot, you can't be on autopilot. And sudden, it's time to think. Time to use the prefrontal cortex again.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> most of the time, we are just creatures of habit.
0: There's a lot of that. <laughs>
1: You know, we're just on autopilot most of the time, Mm -hmm. you know, because we have limited cognitive resources. So we can't, we can't be deliberating, (laughs) but about about everything and and do we stress? And we know this is true that in fact, performance gets worse. Usually if you're thinking too hard about it, you know, like if you're an athlete, you just want to be in the zone, right? You don't want to have to be deliberating. You know, how do I swing the bat? (laughs) no no you just gotta be in the zone and and you just feel it right and you do it right
0: (laughs) like it's in your subconscious and not in your conscious
1: yeah already there yeah
0: that's a great point this is a couple of great life points actually that we're bringing up which is good i remember i read about that as far as sports players you want to get to the point where you're not processing if you are the quality of your ability goes down not and,
1: to. Yeah, exactly. And, and so what's going on here, it's super important, is that, of course, the baseball player, the batter, has to be attuned to very fine, you know, features of the environment, how fast the ball's coming, you know, what curve it's coming in at and so forth. They have to be atoned to that, but they shouldn't be thinking consciously about it. It's like all of their reflexes and their perception has to be keyed into that, but you actually don't want conscious cognition intervening because that's slow and stupid. (laughs) And so it's getting, and so what's beautiful about this is that it takes like hours and hours of practice, but what you're practicing at is not some mechanical motion that's repeated exactly the same. No, what actually you're practicing at is Getting that atonement between your body and the rapidly changing environment so that your bat can hit the ball in just the right place at just the right velocity and direction and so forth to, you know, bat the ball where you want it to go. Right. And so habits then become a matter of atonement and responsiveness to a pretty fine grained variations in the environment and that's why we shouldn't think of habit as these mechanical stupid things where we're just like you know a machine that's just repeating the identical motion over and over again habits are not like that they're actually subtle and responsive when they're good when they're really finely tuned that's what they're doing they're very skilled
0: right oh speaking on the point of responsiveness um what are your thoughts on the idea that level of responsiveness is associated with intelligence how would those be connected
1: oh i I agree but we have to understand intelligence very expansively and not in this reductive way that you could measure with an iq test or any other kind of test Mm -hmm. right i mean there is there's physical intelligence right (laughs) and and that's something you don't paper and pencil tests are not going to measure that Mm -hmm. And there's also like for other kinds of habits, emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you say are in a job where you have to interact with other people, you you need some emotional intelligence to sort of pick up on, you know, maybe something's making your coworker upset or whatever, or anxious, right? You got to be attuned to that and think, or students, you know, like, I I teach, and so I have to be attuned to when students are confused or anxious about something, and help help move them to you know greater self confidence in in their intellectual abilities and in the way they do philosophy and and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing I like when you're describing the story well two things come to mind but the story we were describing earlier the level of detail you brought to it as far as uh, not having to go on the same regular path it came to mind that i feel like the individual who takes something to full description or story or makes the question in full form will get much further in life than the person who goes like 20 percent and then kind of says and you get it or kind of just shortens it at that point and doesn't describe it in full detail because I feel like they do that everywhere they go have you ever thought about this concept of um people kind of doing everything the same way whatever it is driving on the freeway or the way they take a test or the way they send an email they're all kind of they have a similar how far they take something before they're like "Ah, that's good enough I'm not gonna put more effort in
1: (laughs) yeah so yeah yeah they're they're definitely are people like that i mean you can also i have to say get a little too obsessive and too perfectionist sometimes you just gotta like get the work out and right Right. not not have to polish it to the finest degree right (laughs) that's
0: true and then on the other point as far as intelligence you, you mentioned emotional and physical and then uh the like iq kind what kinds of intelligence appear to be more relevant in today's age versus maybe, I don't know, a hundred years ago.
1: You know, I think they, all of these forms of intelligence remain relevant, but perhaps in different domains. So what we do find is that in the world of work, Mm -hmm. sheer manual skill is being replaced by robots, you know, machine, sophisticated manufacturing, right? And, and so th- perhaps that's getting displaced to a certain degree, but we still have physical skill in more craft-like uh, jobs. Like if you're a plumber, right? You just gotta be there or, you know what I mean? Or a carpenter who's actually like directly working on repairs or construction that there's still a lot of scope for skilled manual labor in those places. But in manufacturing, where you're just making millions of the same item, that tends mm-hmm. to be automated more and more.
0: Right, that's true. Emotional intelligence appears to be well received at the current time.
1: Well, you know, but this is a problem. So it's one of the things I'm working on right now. It's it's a, it's kind of a sequel to uh, my book, Um, private government, how employers rule our lives and why we don't talk about it, I'm writing a book about the work ethic Mm -hmm. and the history of the work ethic for the mid 17th century to the present with a special focus on the Industrial Revolution. Because what happened there was that you had manufacturing became mechanized during the industrial revolution. It it was converted from craft labor to mechanized labor. And what we're seeing today is the attempt to turn more domains of work, including forms of work that have traditionally involved a lot of emotional engagement with other people into a more mechanized, repetitive, rule-driven, kind of work so you can see this especially in medicine my husband is a primary care physician so he's feeling the brunt of this so if you go back to the industrial revolution there were all these critics of mechanized factory labor because it was de skilling and boring and repetitive and grueling and like horrible right Right? you 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 originally you know if you were a master of a craft you would you would Create the whole object, whatever it might be, right? A shoe or, you know, a piece of furniture or something, right? Yeah, and working. then with mechanization, now you're only confined to one simple repetitive motion. So Adam Smith, famously in The Wealth of Nations, discusses a pin factory where a worker who previously fashioned an entire pin now it was just reduced to putting the head on the pin or just pointing the tip of the pin. And they did that a million times a day, right? It's like repetitive and boring and they've lost a lot of skill, right? And the thing is, is that that, that drive to automate and mechanize and de-skill and reduce to a set of fixed rules has now been has invaded the professions. You see this in teaching, especially at the K through 12 level. You have these charter schools that are based on fixed curricula and literally spell out every single word that the teacher utters. And every single thing, everything is precisely scripted. There's no room for deviation. Everything is on a rigid schedule. The students themselves have scripted responses that they have to repeat everything's turned into automation, right? And totally world-driven. There's no autonomy. There's no independent thinking. And and what happens in those kinds of schools, it is true. And I, I will grant that those schools enable children to get very high test scores, okay? But what's eliminated, right, is all this other stuff that, that you want education to do, which has to do with, you know, you want kids to be able to say, present their ideas before others and learn how to think for themselves and stand up for themselves and work as a team and cooperate to play well together and all all these other things, which are kind of eliminated in the steamroll obsession of getting high test scores. And the same thing is happening in medicine where, again you know they speed up the assembly line and now you got to see one patient every 15 minutes so there's no room in the frenetic pace and all the roles they have checklists of things you have to check up on now okay well how much time is left to actually deal with the problem that the that the patient has come in that they're worried about and and How can you deal with the fact that their problem isn't just a purely physiological thing, but it's also a form of suffering that they're very worried maybe that this is cancer, right? And then you have to like probe their worries and how are they going to cope or maybe say, oh, this isn't cancer. This is like, you know, just a minor thing, right? Right. Right? I mean, there's, there's all this emotional work that has to be done with effective medicine. You know, patient care that gets eliminated because there's no time for that anymore. Nope, gotta go on to the next patient. So you know, you just write a prescription on your pad, <laughs> right? It's like there's no time for dealing with the fact that people are worried and there and there's all these coping skills maybe that they need and you no know, time for that, right? Because you gotta go on to the next. And medicine gets reduced too. It's a so you see that drive to mechanization. That was started in manufacturing and it's de skilling the professions now and cutting out what makes them meaningful for people.
0: Right. When you're describing that, it makes me think of sometimes a conversation with a person where if they are too much talking about formalities, well, then you'll talk about formality, then formality, then maybe you'll eat something and they'll talk about formality, some general thing. You never got to something like your deep well being for each of you, and then yeah. uh, the time is up. <clears throat>
1: That's right. And, you know, and there is this idea that if somebody comes in with a medical problem, like there's a cookie cutter solution, but usually not. There's all kinds of psychosocial factors that are peculiar to that individual, their personality, their way of relating to medical care and to maybe the deterioration of their bodies as they age, Everybody's got a different story. You need time to kind of work with people so that they can figure out how to cope in a way that's compatible with their personality and, you know, with the relationships they have with other people who might help or maybe not be so helpful with that to them, (laughs) right?
0: Right. This brings up the point that comes to mind for me that's very important is nuance. I've talked about this a few times how it seems like the highest value, a very high value item we have in society is nuance and detail-oriented nature and actually looking at the real issue versus maybe in the work industry it has its own response or the medical industry has its own baseline response that doesn't get to the more important issues but it works generally and I talked to that with ethicist Susan Leotow who works on ethics and we talked a lot about nuance in like terms of service and paperwork and how important it is for the consumer to also be on the same point. How much do you think about nuance or detail-oriented nature being the actual solution to a lot of issues that can't be solved by some cookie cutter method?
1: Oh, I, I agree completely, but here's the critical point. You need to leave Rome <laughs> you know, for the articulation of that nuance, right? and that's what's getting i think driven out of a lot of a lot of work these days right space you tend to reduce everything to just a set of protocols it's a, it's a big problem for for people
0: this one company my friend was at they were called standard operating procedures they had a bunch of these sop's and they would follow yeah you.
1: exactly <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes standard doesn't work that well right <laughs>
0: sometimes it's not the thing. Speaking of that, re- related to that book Private Government How Employers Rule Our Lives, your previous book, what what is an impact that employers are having on people's lives in 2021 that is heavily impacting them but nobody's talking about it.
1: There's a lot of issues, but a big problem that I see mm-hmm that the scope of the employer's authority extends well past the workplace. Most workers have no idea until they're slammed with it that the work, that, that their job is in jeopardy, even for stuff they do when off duty, just because their boss might not like it, <laughs> okay? And you know my view is it's none of the boss's business you know, who you're sleeping with or what kind of recreation you have on the weekends. You know, if you wanna smoke a joint on the weekends, like it's really not your boss's business. And and (laughs) now, I mean, if you show up stoned on Monday, can't perform, okay, then your boss has a legitimate complaint. But if you're up there sober, on Monday could do the work. It's really none of your boss's business, what your recreational activities were over the weekend. Mm-hmm. But in reality, under the law, you can be fired by your employer because they don't like your off-duty lifestyle. And I, I, and I think that's just wrong. It's really none of their businesses. We need We need, workers need the right to lead their lives independent of their employer's judgment and not empower the employer to start messing with them because you know they said something on Facebook that their employer disagrees with, or you know, they have a sexual partner that their employer doesn't approve of. It's really none of their business. <laughs> right? And but employment law doesn't protect workers from that. And most workers have no idea that they could be fired for stuff like that.
0: This is also to extend to I was thinking like how a lot of I know somebody who their employer kind of has them do more work outside of work to keep up, even though it's not required, but if they didn't do an extra certain amount outside of their work, they'd be behind the next day.
1: Oh, yes. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's another way in which employers tyrannize over us. And I want to point out American workers have no idea how bad American workers have it compared to workers in other rich countries, especially in Europe. If you go to Denmark, every worker gets five weeks of paid vacation, plus like a zillion holidays. It's unbelievable how much leisure they have and it's forbidden for the employer to just send them work over the weekend and expect them to do it. It's same in France. Many, many weeks guaranteed paid vacation and the boss can't hassle you after work or over the weekends to do more. They're like even forbidden to send you emails during those times. Right? And they're not allowed to like monitor <laughs> whether you're working. In Denmark, they forbid you even from 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 lo- voluntarily logging on to your work email. <laughs> like it's not okay. No, you're supposed to be at leisure. And here in America, Nowhere are workers guaranteed paid vacation by law. You might have it under your work contract. About half of American workers do get paid vacation under their labor contract, which of course could be cha- is subject to change depending on the bargaining power of the worker. And But even of those workers who have paid vacation as part of their contract, about half of all American workers don't even take all the vacation they're entitled to precisely because they're worried that if they're not showing up at the office right, and working like crazy, they're gonna get fired or they, won't, or they won't get a promotion and so forth. And so American workers are on this incredible treadmill and can't get off because there's no leisure the, and, and they're at risk of losing their positions if they don't like put in double overtime and stuff. It's crazy.
0: Right. That's a good point about the the treadmill, actually. I was think I was kind of feeling that about society in general up until this uh, hefty virus that it was the treadmill was like at like twelve, like a twelve miles per hour. And so this was almost like a breather for the nation. But you're right, if the system's a little bit off, it'll probably return to that. There was a recent top ten countries, happiest In the world and Denmark was in there and Finland and Iceland and it makes sense that when you were describing that made me think do you know uh, Cal Newport's book Deep Work or have you heard of that or it's like uh, it's like if basically distractions completely destroy you and so deep work is like two hours three hours of focus time and the same thing with let's say work there if you have emails coming in at night and it's like a continuous treadmill thing where you never actually uh, replenish in some form
1: Right. And also there's way too much interruption and distraction. You know, I, you know, for my for my kind of work when I'm writing, I can't have distraction. I just got to be focused, right? No interruption. (laughs) And, And like when do workers get that?
0: Right. What is actually on that point, what is a counter force to that? Is there one? For like, let's say the United States, is there some counter to that treadmill? Well,
1: you know, if only, I do think that we need to seriously revive the labor movement. And to a certain degree, it's starting to happen. But uh, workers are under a serious disadvantage when it comes to things like opportunities to unionize. A lot of that is because labor law is no longer enforced. It is illegal to fire a worker for participating in union organization but it happens all the time routinely mm-hmm. it's the norm even though it's illegal and there's no effective enforcement you know judges are stacked against against labor and so employers pretty much have impunity to do whatever they want we'll see what happens cuz now there's an Amazon union uh uh drive at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama. We'll see if that succeeds. I think they're I think they're voting right now or very soon at any rate. We'll see, but Amazon has, you know, intimidated people, fired people, threatened them. Even though that's illegal too by the way, it's illegal to threaten people that their jobs will be lost if they vote for a union, but it's still absolutely routine to do that.
0: Well, So if Denmark uh, appears to have a more well-off system, would they have at one point in the long past kind of been like some parts of what we have or did they start off on a different direction and remain that way? Do they have like unions or how does it work? Yeah,
1: so this is like the incredible thing is that the United States used to be you know, Europeans would look at the United States and think this is a worker utopia, at least for white men, right? We're not talking about slaves or women, right? But Europeans would look at the, at the circumstances of white men, like in the 19th century, and they thought this is like a worker's utopia, mm-hmm. right? They had high wages, they had much higher levels of education, far better opportunities, huge opportunities to get your own land. You know, they had the Homestead Act, you just go West, you get some free land. Now let's keep in mind, of course, that's because it was all grabbed very violently from Native Americans. So I'm not gonna like praise everything that the Europeans were praising about it, but they did say this incredible land of opportunity for white men at least. And, you know, for generations, American workers free workers were much better off than European workers. But what happened in the post-war era was the rise of social democracy in Europe, and certainly in the Scandinavian countries. And ultimately social democracy delivered far better results for workers than anything the United States came up with. And so that's why You know, workers in Denmark and Sweden, Norway, and so forth, are just way better off. And not only there, but even in Germany and France, they're generally better off. Um, Part of it's due to uh, higher rates. It's not so much higher rates of unionization, but the unions have much greater bargaining power. They have things like sectoral bargaining, where the unions can bargain on behalf of all the workers in a whole sector of industry and they have these grand bargains, you know, between like conglomerations of employers and very large sectors of workers and they just hammer everything out. But the other thing that's very important to the social democratic model, it was invented in Germany, but it spread. It's known as co-determination and co-determination means that workers have a voice in management they sit on the board of directors of the firm where they're employed but they also participate in what's known as works councils which regulate the day-to-day operations like how work goes on the factory floor or just in the in the office on the day-to-day what work conditions are like what the pace is like you know what kinds of surveillance of workers is okay and what isn't and so forth like all the details of what makes your your workday go better or worse are not just exclusively dictated by you know the employer but workers have a genuine voice in that and that gives them dignity and respect as well as you know some kind of standing where their interests are taken into account
0: a good point that just came up as you were describing it, it almost sounds like the average Communication per capita in Denmark is higher than national communication or expression per capita in the United States. Like there's a good chunk of people that are let's say silenced in a way.
1: So- oh yeah. I, I I think that's right. Because look, we could see this in the pandemic. <clears throat> Early on, when there was a shortage of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, you had nurses and doctors complaining to the press or maybe just on social media that they didn't have enough masks and gloves and gowns and so forth. And then they would be fired for making those complaints. This is shocking and outrageous. And let's keep in mind that it is illegal in the United States under labor law to fire a worker for complaining about conditions. But if there's one, thing that we know is that labor law is not enforced and workers don't really have any serious recourse against the grossest violations of their rights because judges don't care, because a pile of precedents, very unfavorable to workers has piled up. And because many of them operate, they work under mandatory arbitration, which means that if they have a complaint it doesn't, they don't get the chance to have it heard by a court. In fact, they, it's heard secretly by some private arbitrator who knows that if they don't render decisions mostly in favor of the employer, they won't get their contract renewed. So you can guess how much less favorable mandatory arbitration is to workers than decisions rendered in the federal courts.
0: Well, so if if the same issue happened, and it was in Denmark and the United States, uh, the Danish person would have more of a support from. Oh,
1: they'd have. I mean, look, they're first of all, they'd be typically backed up by a union, so they can't be fired mm-hmm. because it's a real serious union. They have a works council. They can direct their complaint through a works council, Mm -hmm. right? There's all kinds of internal ways of adjudicating instead of the boss just saying, I don't don't really care. I don't have to pay attention to you. No, they would have to pay attention because the work council is staffed half by employees who have an interest in paying attention and taking care, right? It's not just the boss deciding whether or not they they're interested in hearing this complaint, they have to hear because otherwise, you know, (laughs) the workers can like force the issue since they're part of management too.
0: That makes sense. It's like built into the system as part of it.
1: Correct. Yes. Hmm.
0: One other related concept is there are more socially democratic there. And as the world is becoming more connected, like we have, the last 10, 15 years have brought almost all the countries on the planet to the table of internet connection and trade more so, I believe. Does that make the countries that are not as uh, social or collectivist have a disadvantage versus the ones that are more group-oriented?
1: Well, I think um, under the current roles of international trade, They've kind of been rigged in the interests of capitalists to uh give certain kinds of trading advantages to the doggy dog countries. <laughs> right, you know, where they where all the competition among workers drives wages and labor conditions down to the rock bottom. You know, you don't want to be a factory worker in like Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not so hot. Right. Um, right? Because it's all doggy dog competition, but we could change the rules of international trade. Like, you know, these were built by human beings and we could change the rules in order to ratchet up labor standards so that workers in poor countries could get a better deal. And it wouldn't even cost consumers in rich countries that much. I I just want to stress this. Like, They even tested this out some while ago and I can't remember, but maybe like in El Salvador, there's some shirt factory, okay? That's making shirt for consumption. It's being bought by the big brand name, fashion firms for consumption in the United States. Mm -hmm. You could double the wages, double the wages of like uh. A textile worker or you know, a sewer in El Salvador. And the price that you would face in the United States for the shirt maybe goes up like, you know, a quarter, 25%. I mean, that I'm sorry, 25 cents. 20 cents yeah. Not 25%. Right, right. 25 cents. It's like you wouldn't even notice. Right. Right. <laughs> it's so small. It just shows you how little the price of the stuff we buy goes to workers in the first place. It goes to the brand. It goes to the marketing people. <laughs> it's not actually going to the people who make this stuff. Right. But you get you can double their wages. I mean, they'd be like vastly better off, right? Mm-hmm. And, and rich consumers wouldn't even notice the difference.
0: Right. I thought about this concept in life, such as like when things, are good for a group it doesn't take much to have an impact on those who have not had it good because you already have a base of good so you're comfortable i don't know how to exactly verbalize it but there's real opportunity kind of like barack obama one time he said if you're in in a position of opportunity if you don't reach back and bring somebody with you, you shouldn't really be there. because Oh, I agree. You have so much potential right there.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, <clears throat> economists talk about the declining marginal utility of money, right? So if you have a million bucks, an extra dollar doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. But, it, but, you know if you're living on $2 a day, an extra dollar makes a gigantic difference. (laughs) So, right. It could make the difference between living and dying where it's not gonna make any really no no noticeable difference at all to somebody who has a million dollars. So, right. It's just pretty easy to figure out that at very little cost to oneself, you know, channeling more, money to people who are much less well off is an obvious winner mm-hmm.
0: i thought about this in terms of like energy let's say i'm having a day where i'm packed with energy and full of radiance i could make 10 people's days better that are not doing great with little things because i have this the surplus it's kind of like the same okay. yeah
1: yeah 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 I mean a little thing a little thing for you might actually make a big difference to somebody else yeah
0: right. I always relate things back to people in relationships when I take it from different categories, but I always go back to people in relationships. It's nice to see how the world is progressing. Where are you seeing? What issues are you seeing being relevant in this decade of the 2020s for us to think about so we can get along as people?
1: Well, I think um, there's there's several big issues, right? Um, One of it is the state of democracy. It's pretty frayed. um, And a lot of it has to do with the toxic discourse of politics. So in my state, the state of Michigan, you might have heard that uh, the co-chair of the Republican Party referred to the governor, the secretary of state, um, and the uh, the attorney general of Michigan, all three women, as three witches who need to be burned at the stake. And then he then he he talked about a you know not hitting personally, but like the possibility that the two Republican members of the House of Representatives who voted to impeach Donald Trump the second time around might be assassinated. Okay, like this is very violent rhetoric, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like really? And the co-chair of the of the state Republican Party is talking like this? Like that's very anti-democratic. So I think a big issue for the next decade is restoring, a democratic ethos of communication where we don't treat the political opposition as like enemies of the people who need to be destroyed. Okay, just drop the violence. See that everybody's a human being here. That in fact, within a democracy, there's enormous potential to build policies from which everyone could gain. Stop seeing politics as this sort of realm in which, People are just trying to insult and troll each other and you know, get people upset and act superior. <laughs> That's not what politics is for, right? We're supposed to be communicating with each other so that we can get a handle on what are the problems that we face together and come up with solutions, cooperative solutions for solving the problems that we face together. Things like the pandemic, like climate change, <laughs> Right? Uh, Bigger picture. (laughs) And, and, you know, I do think that maybe President Biden is helping us talk in more constructive ways. He talks in more constructive ways. He's not paying attention to all the backstabbing and trolling and insults and, you know, all the nastiness. He, He just is ignoring all that. He's always only addressing the American people, not the chattering politicians or people yakking on social media and being mean to each other. He's showing empathy for everybody. He's recognizing the costs that everyone has borne with the pandemic, right? And he's thinking carefully about working with Congress, coming up with solutions to help people. And I think people are hearing that and they're coming to recognize, you know, maybe maybe government can, work for everybody. And, and, and that's what I think the pandemic bill, the relief bill was all about. We, we can make government work for everybody. That's that's a profound message. And to experience that in our lives maybe will help us get off the acrimony and divisiveness and, and start serious cooperation. And that's something that I think all the democracies have to have to learn because democracy is fraying at the edges in a lot of countries, not just the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to talk with Peter Coleman from Columbia. And he, his book was about polarization and reducing it in some form because it doesn't tend to be helpful.
1: It's totally not helpful. <laughs> Look, it's just, it's not, it, you know, if you if you interpret what anybody says as a move in a game, of positioning who's better than who, who's morally superior or whatever, that's a catastrophe because that's a zero sum game where one person can rise or your group can rise only at the expense of some other group that's put down. It's toxic, it's destructive, and it's totally not real because you're just engaging in this symbolic positioning rather than actually dealing with real problems that we face which are serious. We have climate change, you know, we have the pandemic, people die, right, from these things, right? These are real problems. And we got to get to the real problems. And that means we have to set aside all of this kind of jockeying for status by insulting each other.
0: (laughs) Makes me think of a baseline example, like on the freeway, somebody cut somebody off and there was like a race and they cut them off and I won. And then like a minute later, they're on their path and they're like, oh what was that? I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah,
1: yeah what? I mean, this is not a racetrack. Right. <laughs> Why are you thinking of it that way?
0: Right. <laughs> it's, it's very short. short Why story.
1: not just like drive safely? Okay. Because you know, each of us has our own destinations right. to reach.
0: There's some cool stuff over there, maybe.
1: Yeah. That's
0: <laughs> it's kind of funny. One thing I like to check. Is do you have any people like one or two that you would recommend I would speak with, or that comes to mind as far as people that you um, think would be interesting to talk with? If anything um, comes to mind <clears throat> from the greater you world,
1: talk to my colleague Peter Railton. Peter Railton, yeah, yeah,
0: that sounds good. how do you know of peter
1: well peter's my colleague in the in the philosophy department but he he's also i think he's very deeply engaged in thinking about the emotions and emotional entombment and how how that helps us navigate you know through our environments successfully so i I really and he's very deep into the psychological research on this um so i think you enjoy talking to him
0: that sounds wonderful and then i'll check with peter and then one last question is if you had a megaphone to all people of the planet what is the message you would want to tell them about um, one of the topics we have covered or something you are currently working on that might help them uh, in their mindset
1: I would say human beings work better together when we cooperate on terms of mutual respect and equality. And that requires always looking for win win propositions rather than jockeying for a superior advantage over others.
0: that is a clear and great message right there professor anderson i would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the armin show
1: thanks for inviting me
0: that too and we are out